this morning, sort of in keeping with the theme of Phil's last two messages on the mortification of sin, one from Psalm 51 and the other from Colossians 3, 5 to 10, I want to preach a message this morning on the doctrine of sin. And in this sermon, I don't so much want to focus on how to fight sin as a believer, uh, which Phil covered capably over the last two weeks. Instead, I want to focus on the origin of sin in the human race and, and the transmission of sin from Adam to each of us and the, the spiritual effects of sin on humanity as a whole. And some of you are thinking, why would you want to focus on that? <laughs> that sounds depressing. And the answer is, for the same reason that an astronomer might want to look into the darkness of the night sky. If you think about it, the stars never go away. The stars are in the sky right now, but we don't see the stars during the day. Usually we don't have the cloud cover that we have, but uh, you know, even when the clouds aren't there, we don't see the stars in the sky because their radiance is outshone by the superior light of the sun. It's only as the sun retreats from view and as the heavens are shrouded in darkness that the brilliance of the stars become visible to us. The glory of the heavenly hosts are only enjoyed by the dark contrast of the night sky. I remember the same principle illustrated clearly to me when I went shopping for Jana's engagement ring. Uh, as I visited jeweler after jeweler, I'd look at the, all the diamonds in the display cases. And when I'd want to look at one more closely, you know, they, they took it out, but they didn't just, you know, put it on the glass case. They didn't just hand it to me in the little tweezers and with the little uh, microscope. They, they all did the same thing. The little, what do you call it? The little microscope, Shirley. What do you... What are you laughing at me for? They call it a loop, okay? It's a loop. I know what it's called. I didn't know if anybody else knew what it was called. Killing me. Yeah. They all did the, the same thing. They put, they put this diamond on a black velvet cloth. Now, why would they do that? Because the diamond seems to, to sparkle all the more brightly when it's set against the black backdrop of that cloth. And the doctrine of man's sin functions in a very similar way with respect to the glory of our salvation, as does the night sky for the stars or a black velvet cloth for a diamond. If we are to have any hope of properly apprehending the brilliant glory revealed in God's work of saving sinners... We need to see that glory set against the black backdrop of our sin. We need to properly understand the state from which we need to be saved. I mean, even the language of saved or salvation means absolutely nothing unless we understand from what we have been saved. If we underestimate the severity of humanity's natural state and the gravity of our need before a holy God, we will inevitably underestimate the sovereign power of God's remedy and the glory of His salvation. And conversely, if we're going to worship God for the fullness of His saving work in our lives, we must devote ourselves to understanding man's fall into sin as well as the effects of that fall on the whole of mankind. And so with that in mind, let's come to our present study. We won't be focusing on a single text of Scripture this morning, but we'll consider several passages as they bear on our subject. We'll start in Genesis 1, so if you want a head start, you can go to Genesis 1. And we'll outline our study in four points. 
First, we'll look at man's original righteousness as he was created by God. Second, we'll examine man's catastrophic fall into sin. Third, man's imputed guilt. And fourth, we'll consider man's total depravity as he presently labors under the curse of sin. In the first place, let's consider man's original righteousness. And this first point is going to be disproportionately shorter than the others, but it's, necessarily, it's necessary groundwork to lay as we seek to understand the fall. We have to grasp the state from which we've fallen before we can adequately grasp our fall into sin. So having said that, it's important to observe that Scripture says that God made man very good. Genesis 1 chronicles God's creation of everything, the dry land and the waters, the plants and the trees, the sun, moon, and stars, and then the fish and the birds and the beasts. And after the report of the creation of each of these things as a refrain, Scripture repeatedly adds the phrase, and God saw that it was good. Well, God comes to the pinnacle of His creation on day six, which is the creation of man in His own image, distinct from the rest of His creation, verses 26 to 28. And as Moses recounts creation day six, he says in that final verse, Genesis 1.31, that God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. God made man very good. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says that God made men upright. This means that Adam and Eve were not morally neutral creatures. They were created in what the Reformed tradition has called original righteousness. There was no bent in human nature to sin. There was nothing native to the constitution of Adam that was corrupt in any sense. And therefore, if it weren't for sin, Adam and Eve would have never had to die. Mortality, death, is an intrusion into the nature of man. It is not original to man's nature. But even though man was created very good and morally upright, nevertheless, Adam did not exist in the highest possible state of righteousness that man could attain. Why do I say that? Because Adam's original righteousness was a fallible righteousness. That is to say, it was possible for Adam to fall from such a state, which, of course, Genesis 3 records, and the rest of human history testifies to. In Adam's original state, he was both able to sin and able not to sin. But that is not a state of perfect blessedness. It is not the eternal life which sinful humanity receives through salvation in Christ. Praise God that our final state of righteousness in heaven will not be one from which we can fall. In the eternal state, glorified believers will not be able to sin and able not to sin. We will be unable to sin. And so while Adam's original state could in some sense properly be called original righteousness, his original righteousness was not an immutable righteousness. It was a righteousness from which he could and did fall. That brings us right away to our second point, man's catastrophic fall. Man's catastrophic fall. See, in the wisdom of God, God was pleased to test 
this original, fallible, untested righteousness of man. And this test, if passed, would have exalted man from his state of untested, fallible righteousness to a state of confirmed, infallible righteousness or eternal life. And God did this by way of the commandment He gave to Adam in the garden, which we see in Genesis chapter 2. Turn there with me. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Then Yahweh God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. This was the test that would either confirm Adam's righteousness or be the cause of his undoing. If Adam disobeyed this command, both he and those whom he represented, which is to say the entire human race, we'll get to that in a moment, but both he and those whom he represented would be cursed by sin. And of course, we know that that's actually what happened. But the threat of death for disobedience clearly implies the promise of life for obedience. I'll say that again. The threat of death for disobedience clearly implies the promise of life for obedience. If Adam obeyed this command, he would have lived. He would have confirmed his righteous status and secured eternal life, both for himself and for those whom he represented. Now, there's some controversy over this because some people say that the alternative to death for disobedience was never a reward for obedience. It was just the continuation of life in the garden in his present state. The problem with that, though, is that man would then be in a perpetual state of testing, always able to sin and able not to sin, never enjoying the security of eternal life with God from which he could not fall. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil would have still been there during the lives of Cain and Abel, and their children after them if they hadn't sinned, and, and theirs after them. In fact, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil could have still been here today under this scheme if all of humanity refused to eat of the fruit. And then if someone did eventually eat of the tree, it would have been through that person that sin entered the human race, and that person would have been the representative of all humanity. But the representative of all humanity is an office that Scripture restricts to Adam and to Christ alone. And besides this, the natural relationship between God and man meant that Adam was already duty-bound to obey the law of God that was written on his heart. Simply by virtue of being a creature, Adam owed obedience to his Creator. He, he was to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was to worship Him only, making no idols out of anything in the creation. And when his neighbors came along, he was to love them as himself, not murdering them, not stealing from them, not coveting what was theirs, not violating the sanctity of marriage. This law was written on Adam's heart by nature. And obedience to this law was not attended with any promise of reward. When Adam obeyed the law written on his heart, he could only say as it is said in Luke 17, 10, I am an unprofitable servant. I've done that which was only my duty to do. So if obedience to the law written on Adam's heart resulted in his continuing in his original state of righteousness, 
Why would God add the command not to eat of the tree, something that was entirely arbitrary, right? It was was not inherently sinful to eat of trees. Why would he add that unless the implied promise to life was of a different character? Adam already had a law which, if he obeyed it, resulted in the continuation of his present state. Why should this arbitrary prohibition repeat the same state of affairs? And the answer is it doesn't. This command was a law of a different sort. It was a probation of Adam's untested righteousness, which, if obeyed, would have resulted in the conferring of eternal life, of a righteousness that could not be lost or forfeited by sin. It was of a similar arrangement as expressed in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, where God told Israel, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. And then commenting on this verse, Paul writes in Romans 10, 5, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Perfect obedience results in eternal life. But perfect obedience is not what Adam rendered. As we turn to Genesis 3, we find that familiar scene where the serpent deceives Eve into eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happens? Satan comes and he casts doubt on God's Word, did God really say? He encourages Eve to think and reason independently of the revelation of her Creator. And he convinces her that God's prohibition was born out of his stinginess and his tight-fistedness, that in the middle of paradise, God was withholding blessing from her. Look at verses 4 and 5. You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God doesn't want your eyes open. He doesn't want you to be like Him. He doesn't want that kind of competition. And then verse 6 says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, which is the lust of the flesh, when she saw that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that's the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, which is the pride of life, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So get this, the first human sin consisted in the doubting of God's Word and God's goodness, the goodness of His character, the rejection of His Word as the authority for life, the assertion of man's own autonomous reasoning as his authority in place of God's revelation, and the breaking of God's law. And the consequences of this are unfathomable. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. And if we took time to understand all of the implications of what happened in that moment, it should make us all weep. The creature had forsaken and rebelled against the Creator. 
The man had failed his test. The human race was catapulted into depravity and shame. The man and his wife died in that moment, just as surely as God had promised. In their fig leaves and loin coverings, man-made religion and self-atonement came into being. Fellowship with God was broken. Man hid himself from the delight of his eyes, from the source of all of his satisfaction. Then verse 9, Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And notice, even though Eve sinned first, God calls man to account for this transgression. Why? Because even before the fall, Adam, not Eve, was the head of the home. And perhaps even more significantly, Adam, not Eve, was the representative head of the human race whose actions counted for all mankind. And man answers in verse 10 and says that he was afraid because he was naked. So shame and fear result from the fall. And God asks, how did he know he was naked and, and whether he ate from the tree? And in verse 12, Adam shifts the blame. It was the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me from the tree and I ate. And then Eve says, the serpent deceived me and, and I ate. So blame shifting has resulted from the fall. And then you see the rest of the results. Verse 14, the world is cursed. Verse 14 says, the serpent is cursed more than any animal, which means that animals are cursed by the fall. Verse 15 says, Satan is cursed by the promise of the gospel. The seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head. The woman, verse 16, is cursed with multiplied pain in childbirth. Verses 17 and 19 say the creation itself is cursed. And that man is cursed with painful labor in working the ground. And then along with the spiritual death that took place in the moment of disobedience, man is cursed with physical death, sentenced to return from the ground, the dust of the ground from which he was taken. And then finally, in verses 22 to 24, mankind is expelled from the garden, driven from God's presence, exiled from the eternal life with God that he was promised upon his obedience. But even as this passage indicates, the effects of the fall reached well beyond that because God appointed Adam to be the representative of the entire human race. When Adam fell into sin and died, all of humanity fell into sin and died as well. And that brings us to our third point, namely man's imputed guilt. Man's imputed guilt. And the classic text for this is Romans 5. Let's turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 19. In this text, Paul's concerned to demonstrate that there is a parallel between the guilt and condemnation of all who are united to Adam and the righteousness and justification of all who are united to Christ. And several verses in this paragraph are relevant to our topic. The key verse is verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, that is, death is the consequence of sin, before sin there was no death, 
And so death spread to all men because all sinned. This death that came as a result of Adam's transgression spread to all people. And Paul says that's because all sinned. And we'll come back to that thought, but let's keep going in the passage. Verse 15 says, By the transgression of the one, Adam, the many died. Humanity died. Verse 16, the judgment arose from one transgression, the sin of Adam, resulting in condemnation. Verse 17, by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Verse 18, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. And verse 19, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made or constituted sinners. So the point is plain. Adam's one transgression of eating of the fruit of the tree brought condemnation to all people. All human beings are born sinful, alienated from God, and in need of salvation because what Adam did counted for all of humanity. Now, in what way and in what sense did all people sin, verse 12, with the result that death spread to all men. The fourth century heretic Pelagius, along with his followers, say that this means no more than that each person dies as a result of each person's personal sin. All people sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And so all people die as a consequence of their personal sin. Adam was nothing more than a bad example, and human beings have followed in the footsteps of his sin, and so we follow in the footsteps of his death. Well, all people do die because of their personal sin, but this verse is actually saying much more than that. Romans 5.12 does not merely say that death spreads to all men because all sin. Those verbs are not in the present tense. Paul is not merely teaching that as a matter of course, death eventually spreads to all people because all people eventually sin. Let's look at this closely. There are three verbs in verse 12 with a fourth implied. And Paul says that one, sin entered into the world. He says that two, death entered through sin. And though the verb isn't repeated, it's clearly implied, death entered through sin. He says, three, death spread to all men, and finally, for all sinned. So all of those verbs are in the aorist tense, and they're parallel to one another. This means that we are constrained by the context to interpret them all in the same way. One is not going to be past time, or the other one's going to be in the present time. There's nothing in the context that would indicate that we should consider those verbs differently. They're all in the same tense and they're all parallel. Now, normally, verbs in the aorist tense are translated as a simple past. And the New American Standard translates them that way here. Sin entered. Not sin has entered. Not sin will enter. Not sin enters. Sin entered. Simple past. But sometimes the aorist can be used to refer to present tense events that happen as a matter of course. The grammarians call that a nomic use of the aorist, for those of you who might care about that. In other words, depending on the context, an aorist verb could be translated not in the past time, but as a proverbial present. So technically, 
if the context allows, the grammar of this verse could be translated, death spreads to all men because all sin. As a matter of course, everybody dies because as a matter of course, everybody sins. But is it best to interpret these as proverbial aorists here? No, it's not. The context won't allow it because, again, what's true for one of these verbs has to be true for all three. And the first one shuts the door on that idea. It is not Paul's intent to say, just as through one man sin enters the world, sin does not enter the world, sin entered the world at a specific point in the past, namely the moment that Adam sinned in the garden. Therefore, context demands that the other aorist verbs in this verse be interpreted in the same way. Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death entered through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So this verse is translated correctly by the NAS. All people sinned at a particular point in the past. Now, the question is, when did all people, that is, every one of Adam's natural posterity, which includes people who are going to be born tomorrow, at what point in the past did all people sin? The answer has to be they sinned when Adam sinned. Their sin was Adam's sin. All people sinned in Adam. And so 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, in Adam all die. That is to say, by virtue of the union between Adam and his posterity, the guilt of Adam's sin is counted to be theirs. Look at Romans 5.19. You should still be there. As through the one man's disobedience, the many were made, or you could translate that better, constituted or reckoned or counted or imputed sinners. Adam was the representative head of humanity such that God counted the actual disobedience of Adam against all who were in him, all who were united to him, which is to say every human being who ever lived or will live except for Jesus Christ. Adam's guilt is immediately imputed to all of his descendants. This is what we call the doctrine of representative headship. The idea that Adam is our head who represents us in his actions. What he does counts for us. Now, some theologians reject that view in favor of what is called seminal headship. This view teaches that all people were not just counted to be united to Adam in his sin, but that we were all really in Adam seminally when he committed his sin. And that's why we inherit the corruption of his nature. Original sin, they say, consists in our inheriting Adam's corruption, not in being imputed his guilt. They often appeal to Hebrews 7.10. You don't have to turn there, but that speaks about how because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, it can be said that Levi, the father of the Levites, the priest to whom tithes were paid, it can be said that Levi himself paid tithes in Abraham. For, the text says, he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. 
Because Levi was seminally in the loins of Abraham, Abraham's action could be said to be his action. In the same way, they say, because Adam's nature was human nature and because we were all in his loins, his sin corrupted human nature and that corrupt human nature was passed to us. No guilt imputed necessary. But not only does that, this interaction between Abraham and Melchizedek have nothing to do with the doctrine of original sin, Scripture nowhere speaks the same way of Adam and his descendants. We're never told anywhere in Scripture that we were in the loins of Adam. Besides, if that were how it works, why is it that we're responsible only for Adam's first sin in the garden and not each of his transgressions throughout the rest of his life? We were just as much in Adam's loins when he committed the rest of his sins. And yet Romans 5.16 says judgment arose from the one transgression. Verse 18 says it was through one transgression that there resulted condemnation to all men. Condemnation, a legal term, not a infusing evil into us. Condemnation is not making us evil. It's regarding us, judging us as evil according to the law. Well, again, verse, verse 12 says that all sinned at one point in time, not at the multiple points of time throughout Adam's life. And besides even that, we were no more in Adam's loins than in Noah's loins or our earthly father's loins. Why wouldn't we be guilty of their sins as well on this scheme? And aside from even all that, the seminal view can't account for the parallelism between Adam and Christ that is the substance of Paul's entire point in Romans 5, 12 to 19. Paul's entire point in this passage is to explain how Christ's work can count for the believer. That's what he's just celebrated from chapter 4, verse 1 through to 5, 11. He's talking about how, though we're sinful, we can be justified on the basis of Christ's work and not our own through faith. And he's thinking somebody's going to ask him, how is that okay? I mean, how can one person's work count for somebody else? How is it right for God to give the Christian credit for Christ's work? And his answer is to explain that they should have no problem with the concept of the imputation of the actions of a representative head to those who are united to him, because that's exactly what happened with Adam. See the way Paul's reasoning? The imputation of righteousness in Christ follows the exact same pattern as the imputation of guilt in Adam. And he says, you guys already believe this. You already know that this is how things work with Adam. Christ is the second Adam. And so we must ask the question, is Christ's righteousness passed to his people seminally? Is it because we were somehow really in Christ's loins that his works of obedience counted for ours? Of course not. Christ fathered no natural children. Our union with Christ is not natural or, or seminal. Our union with Christ is legal. Christ is the legal representative of all who are united to him. The lived out record of his righteousness is imputed to our account so that his obedience is counted as our obedience. In the same way, Adam is the legal representative of all who are united to him. 
the lived out record of his disobedience in the garden is imputed to our account so that his guilt is counted as our guilt. And people usually have a problem with that because they don't consider the other side of, those, of that thing. How is it fair that somebody's actions could count for mine and I wasn't even there? Well, the same way it's fair, quote unquote, just that Christ's actions count for yours, even though you didn't do those either. So if you've got a problem with imputation of sin to you, you've got a problem of the, with the gospel of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to you as, as well. So to summarize, all humanity sinned in Adam by virtue of the legal union that we had with him. That is to say, all humanity is imputed with Adam's guilt. And therefore, in Adam, all die, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Because sin not only brings legal guilt, but also practical corruption, human nature is polluted and corrupted by sin as well. And that practical corruption of sin is transmitted through natural generation or procreation. So we, we believe the same things as the people who say sin is transferred through uh, natural procreation. Yes, absolutely. That's how we get a corrupt nature. But our corrupt nature is based upon our imputed guilt. It's both and, not either or. So we inherit both the guilt and the corruption of Adam's sin. That's the key thought. We inherit both the guilt and the corruption of Adam's sin. And our actual corruption flows from or follows from our imputed guilt. And that brings us to the fourth point of our outline to man's present state as he labors under the curse of sin. We've seen man's original righteousness. We've seen man's catastrophic fall. We've seen man's imputed guilt. Now we need to consider who man is before God in this world as a result. And the answer to that question is that man is totally depraved. Number four, man's total depravity. Because all of humankind was counted to have sinned with Adam, in union with Adam, every human being inherits a corrupt, sinful nature from conception. Human nature is so thoroughly corrupted by sin that we are entirely unable to free ourselves from sin and from its consequences. We're unable even to make the first move toward God to find a remedy for our sin. So the Westminster Confession captures the of total depravity well when it says, man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or prepare himself thereunto. And like I said, this is the state into which all human beings find themselves since the fall. Let's substantiate that. In David's prayer of repentance, and we're going to go through a, a verses a little bit more rapidly now, not camping out in one passage. So get ready to flip or just write down the references. In David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, he says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. In sin, my mother conceived me. Now, 
This does not mean, as some charge, that David's mother was, had somehow conceived him in, in a sinful way. He was born of fornication or, or adultery or something like this. David refers to his mother multiple times as the Lord's handmaid. Psalm 86, 16, Psalm 116, 16. These are passages which show that, that David's mother was a godly woman. So this is not teaching that he was conceived in some sinful fashion. No, it's teaching that David was sinful even from his birth. In fact, even from the moment of his conception was he reckoned to be guilty with Adam and inherited a corrupt human nature because corrupt human nature is all there is now this side of the fall. He says something similar in Psalm 58.3. He writes, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. And then Paul certifies this in the New Testament. If you want, you can turn to Ephesians 2. He's reminding the Ephesian believers who they were, what their state was before coming to faith in Christ. And in Ephesians 2, 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Before we come to Christ, we exist in a state of spiritual death. And he picks up in verse 3, among them, that is among unbelievers, whom Paul calls the sons of disobedience in verse 2, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Human beings by nature are said to be children of wrath. Nothing at all has to happen to us to make us this way. We are born in such a way that by nature, if no one and nothing were to intervene, we would be just recipients of the wrath of God against our sin. Because of the fall and because of our union to Adam, our representative head, this is what all of humanity is by nature. We are totally depraved. Now, total depravity does not mean utter depravity. It does not mean that the unregenerate man is as bad as he possibly could be. It doesn't mean that unsaved people can't perform acts of relative goodness on a horizontal level, or that they can't recognize and appreciate virtue in the world. By God's common grace, He mercifully restrains the evil even in His enemies so that our sin-cursed world is not as horrible of a place as it could be. No, depravity is total in two senses. One, it's universal, and two, it's comprehensive. And we'll work through those in their turn. First, depravity is universal. That is to say, sin's corruption plagues every member of the human race alike. No one is accepted, aside, of course, from Christ, who was not reckoned to be an Adam and whose humanity was begotten by the Holy Spirit and not by a human father in natural generation. Several passages of Scripture bear this universality of depravity out. 1 Kings 8, 46. Solomon's praying his prayer of dedication for the temple, and he prays that Yahweh would be merciful when Israel sins against him. And almost as an aside, almost as if it was an assumption that was universally accepted and needed no explanation whatsoever, he says, 1 Kings 8.46, for there is no man who does not sin. There's no one who doesn't sin. 
Everybody sins. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. Solomon writes, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. See, that is the standard for fellowship with God, the continual doing of good and never sinning. And he says, no one on earth meets that standard. There is not a righteous man on earth. And then in the New Testament, if, as you go to Romans 3, where Paul's building his argument for the universal need of God's grace of salvation in Christ, he says in Romans 3, verse 10, as it is written, that is in Psalm 14, 1 to 3, and Psalm 58, 1 to 3, which shows that this doctrine of universal depravity is not a New Testament invention. It's not a Pauline doctrine. It's an Old Testament doctrine. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. I'm not sure if any point in all of Scripture is made with a greater degree of clarity than that. No one is good. No one seeks for God. Sin has corrupted everyone. Depravity is universal. Secondly, depravity is called total, not only because it's universal, but also because it's comprehensive. It's comprehensive. That is to say, the corruption of sin extends to every aspect of man's nature. No part of any human being remains unaffected by the fall. The mind, the heart, the will of man are all totally polluted by sin. Let's turn to Scripture to bear this out. First, sin has totally corrupted the human mind. The human intellect is totally depraved apart from Christ. This phenomenon is sometimes referred to as the noetic effects of the fall, noetic from noeo, to understand. These are the effects of sin upon the understanding, upon the mind. So Romans 1.21 says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. This is sin's effect on the mind. And the result of that is spoken of a few verses earlier in verse 18, where Paul says that fallen man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. When we exchange the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creature, which is exactly what Eve did in the garden when she worshipped her own autonomous reasoning over and against God and His Word, Paul says when that happens, we become fools. And though we know the truth because God has made it evident to us, verse 20, we suppress the truth. This is why man's problem isn't that he needs a good argument to believe Christianity. It's why he doesn't need more evidence to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The evidence that he has is conclusive, but the mind that he has to evaluate the evidence is corrupted. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, another passage, speaks of the depravity of the human mind. There, Paul speaks of the Gentiles who don't know God, and he, he charges the church to not behave like them. Who, he says, walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, 
excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. See, the mind has become futile. The understanding has been darkened. Man is characterized by ignorance. And then 1 Corinthians 2, 14 is paramount here. You can turn there. This is one you should see in your own Bibles. And if you're the underlining type, this is a type, a passage to underline. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Paul says, a natural man. So again, this is man in his natural state because of the fall, right? Nothing has to happen to cause this. It is now natural. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. What are the things of the Spirit of God? He's just defined those things in verses 12 and 13 as God's revelation. So a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The natural man's mind has been so corrupted by, by sin that the revelation of God is foolishness to him. It'll always ever be foolishness to him. He is totally unable to accept the truth as God has revealed it in his word, and so he's totally unable to do anything to save himself or even to make the first motion towards salvation. Sin has corrupted the mind. Second, sin has totally corrupted the human heart, which speaks to the affectional life of man, his desires, what he loves, what he hates. You know, oftentimes you hear people today excuse their sin by saying, well, yeah, I sin, but you know, God knows my heart. Yes, God does know your heart, but that should cause you no comfort because apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, let me read you God's estimation of your heart. Genesis 6, 5, then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God saw the heart of humanity, and what he saw so grieved him that he drowned the entire planet. You say, oh, that was only for that first generation of sinners before the flood. Nope. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is incurable. John 3.19, Jesus says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. You see, man's heart, his desires, his affections are so corrupted by sin that he loves what he should hate and he hates what he should love. Man loves darkness. He doesn't just prefer darkness. He doesn't just wind up in the darkness. He loves darkness. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 captures this preeminently. There, Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Depravity consists in this kind of moral blindness that sees beauty and sees glory and is unaffected by it. The human heart is so disordered that it refuses what is most precious because it's blind to its value. Man loves darkness and hates light. He loves evil and hates good. And so as Paul said in Romans 3.11, there is none who seeks for God. The heart is so backwards as a result of sin 
that the God who is worthy to be sought out by all creatures is sought out by none of them. And so sin has corrupted the mind and the heart, but it has also thirdly corrupted the will. Since the fall, man's will has never been free. Let me say that again. Since the fall, man's will has never been free. It has been enslaved to sin. Jesus says this in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And who commits sin? Everyone. The reason everyone commits sin is because everyone is a slave of sin. Sin has mastered the human will so that we act in accordance with our corrupt nature. We do what we want. And because our wills are enslaved to sin, we want only what is sinful. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 16. He asks, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the ones you, you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God, listen, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And then he repeats that in verse 20. He says, you were slaves of sin. And there was nothing special about the Romans that made them slaves of sin as, as opposed to everybody else. This, this is the state of everyone before they are saved. Our wills are enslaved to sin. And so in Isaiah 53, 6, we are told that each of us has turned to his own way. Our wills have gone astray from God. We live to please ourselves. Like Eve, we, we will what is our will rather than what is God's will. See, the will is actuated and activated by the heart. We desire what we love. We want what we love. And, and because the mind and the heart have been corrupted by sin, we desire the wrong things. This is man's problem, not just that he does the wrong things. He wants the wrong things. And so when we say that man doesn't have free will, we're not saying that man doesn't have the capability to make genuine choices. That would be to say that man doesn't have will, but man does have will. He is free to make choices, but because his heart is corrupt and the will is enslaved to sin, he's not free to make holy choices. Because his entire nature is sinful, he wills only what is sin. And so the theologian Lorraine Bettner explains the inability under which man labors is not an inability to exercise volitions, but an, uh, an inability to be willing to exercise holy volitions. And it's this which led Luther to declare, quote, free will is an empty term whose reality is lost. And a lost liberty, according to my grammar, Luther says, is no liberty at all. I think that's a, a point well made. Our wills are enslaved. You can say that we have the ability to make genuine choices, and you can call that free will if you want, but it doesn't make much sense to me to call something free which is enslaved to sin. And then Bentner comments, 
In matters pertaining to his salvation, the unregenerate man is not at liberty to choose between good and evil, but only to choose between greater and lesser evil, which is not properly free will. And so man is free to make choices, but because his will is enslaved to sin, he's not free to make the right choices. For that, his will needs to be freed by the effectual grace of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. But until that moment, man remains totally unable to will any spiritual good. Not only can he not save himself, not only can he not take the initiative in salvation, but even after God has taken the initiative in salvation, man can't even receive the offer of God's grace by believing in the gospel apart from effectual grace until his will has been freed in regeneration. And so for this reason, we often speak of man's total depravity as man's total inability. Write that down. We talked about universality of depravity, the comprehensiveness of depravity. We need to talk about inability when we speak of depravity as well. And we hear of it often in the Scriptures. I, I had one person tell me one time, you never read anywhere in Scripture where man is told what he cannot do with respect to salvation. And I went, <laughs> okay. John 3, 3. Listen to all these cannots, okay? If the objection is, no, nowhere is man told what he can't do. Listen to all these cannots. In John 3, 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 6 of John 3, he explains, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, unless man is first born again, regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God by faith. Until man's nature is changed in regeneration, he is nothing but flesh, and only flesh can produce flesh. The only way spiritual life is possible is if man's nature is changed and his will is freed in regeneration. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus states this same truth even more plainly. No one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Man is unable to come to Jesus unless he's drawn by the Father through the work of the Spirit in regeneration. Back to 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. Ephesians 2.1. Again, Paul says that man in his natural state is dead in trespasses and sins. Listen to me. This is not spiritual sickness. We are not morally wounded. We are not drowning in the sea in search of a divine life preserver. We are dead, drowned, lungs filled with water, body bloated and decomposing on the ocean floor in need of resurrection. Spiritual death speaks of a total inability to make oneself alive. And a corpse cannot will himself to life. He must be raised from the dead by a power external to himself. He must be born all over again. Romans 8, 7 and 8. There, if that's not too far away, turn to Romans 8, 7 and 8. Because that's another one of those texts that you should underline in your Bible. There Paul says... The mind set on the flesh, 
which is to say the, the human mind in its natural state. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, apart from regeneration, our hearts and minds and our wills are so corrupted by sin that we're not even able to submit to God's law. We cannot please Him. And in Hebrews 11.6, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God, which clearly implies that faith does please God. Is that fair? If without faith, it's impossible to please God, faith pleases God. But if faith pleases God, and the natural man, Romans 8.8, 8, cannot please God, that means the natural man cannot have faith apart first from his nature having to be renewed in regeneration. Regeneration is the cause, not the consequence of saving faith. So because of his fall into sin, man is totally unable to will any spiritual good, especially unable to exercise the repentant saving faith that's required in order to receive salvation. Now, certain streams of theology deny that by positing what they call the doctrine of prevenient grace. This is the idea that Jesus died for everyone on the cross and by this universal atonement has granted to all people without exception what could be called a blend of common grace and special grace. This grace supposedly neutralizes the effects of original sin. It brings the sinner into a state where his mind is not entirely darkened, where his heart is not entirely corrupted, and where his will is not entirely enslaved. And therefore, he is able to respond to the gospel using his free will. Yeah, all those texts that you just read speak of man before the cross, before Jesus did this thing to neutralize the effects of the fall, but, but now after that, we, you know, man has been brought back to zero, so to speak. But this doctrine of prevenient grace is nowhere supported by the text of Scripture. Not a single passage of Scripture speaks of the cross as providing a universal revocation of the, the effects of the fall. Scripture everywhere and only speaks of the cross actually purchasing full salvation for the elect of God, whose sins were punished in Christ as their substitute. Nor does Scripture ever represent unregenerate man as if he's been restored to some place of moral neutrality by this work of general grace. As we've just seen, the consistent testimony of Scripture to the nature of sinful man apart from regenerating grace is overwhelmingly pessimistic. Where is this picture in Scripture of the man whose will has been renewed and then the effects of the fall have been neutralized? I see him nowhere. Only the testimony that man is blind, dead, ignorant, hard-hearted, hostile to God, unable to submit to him, a slave to sin, and wholly inclined to evil, a state which cannot be overcome without the effectual regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit. Now, why do I insist on all of that so much? Why is it profitable to spend an hour talking about what we've talked about? Why should we meditate on the depravity of our nature and the inability of other systems of theology to account for Scripture's teaching? Because unless we understand how deep and dire our sin is and our circumstances are, we don't appreciate 
God's grace to us the way we ought to. We don't worship Him the way He's worthy of for the work that He's done. Because inevitably, if we think that our problem is less than it is, we're going to think that God's rescue is less than it is. So where does this all leave us? It leaves us at the cross. It leaves us at the gospel of God's sovereign grace. If man's depravity is to be overcome, if sinners are going to be saved from sin, God himself must be the one to effect salvation, beginning, middle, and end. Man is absolutely powerless to do so in every respect since we're bound in sin and spiritually dead. And so because man is totally unable to respond to the gospel, God himself graciously intervenes in sovereign grace. And that's the message that I preached in the main service last week, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God the Father sent God the Son, his beloved Son, in whom he was well pleased to be born as a man and to live and die in the place of sinners. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that Adam was commanded to live, but failed to live. He lived the perfect life that you and I were commanded to live, but failed to live. Jesus never sinned. He was a man like us, lived for 33 years. Not once did he ever sin, not in anything that he ever did, not in anything that he ever said. Beloved, not even in anything he ever thought or felt. He was perfectly righteous. And because he was, he was a fitting substitute to die as a sacrifice in the place of sinners. On the cross, the Father charged the sins of all those who would ever believe to Christ's account. Just as the Father charged the sins of Adam to the believer, so did the Father charge to Christ's account the sins of his chosen ones. And he then punished the Son as if he lived their lives. And so all of our stains of sin are washed away in the blood of Christ's sacrifice. He bore God's wrath against our sin, and he did that so that the Father could justly and legally and righteously treat sinners as if, Jesus, as if we lived Jesus' perfect life of righteousness. And as we lay hold, we lay hold of that gift of salvation, not through any works we could do, not through any rituals we could perform, not how much Bible we can read or church we can attend or prayers we could pray, but solely through faith alone, which God gives as a gift to all those he means to save. And so if you're here this morning and you are without that gift, if you're not a Christian, I call you to repent and believe in this gospel this morning, to turn from your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Pray to God for the faith. Tell him to open your eyes and show you the glory of Christ in the gospel, in the pages of Scripture. And for my brothers and sisters, I want you to remember, remember the hopeless condition from which you were rescued. Set the glorious gem of gospel grace against the black backdrop of your sin often and praise God for the great salvation by which we have been saved. Let's pray. Father, we know ourselves. We hear all of this. It's impossible to hear of a more pessimistic estimation of ourselves than what's in the Scriptures.
and our heart resonates with all of it. All of our experience testifies to the truth of what you have revealed in your scripture, that we are wicked, that we're depraved, that we're enslaved to sin. And if not for the sovereign grace of God, we would perish eternally. Every single last one of us on the face of the earth would go to hell to pay the punishment for our sins for eternity. And yet, by your sovereign grace, you sent your son free from sin, God himself, to live in the nature of sinners, though himself being without sin, to endure sinners, to die for sinners, to rise again in the place of sinners on behalf of sinners. And we worship you, Heavenly Father, for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. We worship you and we pray that our worship would be purer than it is that the, the awe that we feel at our own salvation, even in this very moment, would be motivation to flee from sin in our lives. That we would constantly keep uh, the, the, our nature before us and so be a humble people, knowing that, that we have been rescued from the depths and the dregs of sin. And that we would preach a gospel of your sovereign grace that we'd go tell the world not that they're good persons or not that they're mostly okay, but that they are dead in their sins and they need the sovereign grace of this only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you use us to, to bring the elect to salvation? Would you use us to, to sanctify the saints? Most of all, would you get what you are worthy of from each and every one of us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.